So tonight we're going to cover the topics of the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, his ascension, his exaltation, and then we're even going to spend some time on the glorification of Jesus. So <clears throat> tonight starts off, I would say, hard, and then it gets more fun as we go forward. Um, I, I started reading it yesterday, and I'm like, oh my goodness, like the six word in is the word torture, and I just jump right into it. So I, I don't know how to get around it, because it just, it is what it is. So um, let's pray, and let's just ask God to use this to help us, to grow us, to change us, to fall more in love with Him. Can I make a prayer request? Can yeah, I please do. When a friend of ours' father was in a very bad accident, uh, he's, in, I think, headed into surgery now, he'll be in the ICU. You know his name? What's your dad's name? We're bad friends, huh? Okay. So we're going to call him yeah, for... Her name's Brandy. Yeah, Brandy. Brandy. her father. All right, friend's father. It's at 135. Somebody, you know, may have seen it. Shut it down for a while. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay, will do. <clears throat> Jesus, we come before you because you are God of everything. You created everything. Nothing exists that you did not create. Every atom, every galaxy. And Lord, by the power of your words, you sustain, maintain, and hold everything together. So as we think about the fact that you died in our place, it's an overwhelming thought. So Lord, guide our heart, guide our minds. Um, even at this moment, we put in your hands Brandy's Father, we ask that you would help him, protect him, give doctors and nurses the ability to do things that will um, help him, save him, and just protect him along the way. So God, we put tonight in your hands, move our hearts, move our minds, allow your word to speak with clarity. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> okay, so we're talking about the death of Christ. So let's start with questions. Uh, why did Jesus need to die? Why do we even have to have this topic? Why did Jesus need to die? Okay, so how is his death connected to saving us? It's the ultimate sacrifice. Why do we need that? God is just, just as need to be satisfied, can only be satisfied with the sacrifice of his sinless son. Okay, so he was dissatisfied with something. Us. us, our sin, our sinful nature, because God's just and holy, he sent his son as a sacrifice for us. Um, why didn't he just, why wasn't just torturing him enough? Why couldn't it have just stopped after torturing him? Why did it have to be a death? So the permanent atonement that kind of rectified us with the Father, and I guess <clears throat> from there is the, the veil ripping kind of symbolized our ability to come into close communion with God. Okay, so I agree with you, it provides a permanent atonement, but why wouldn't torture provide a permanent atonement? I can't argue with I can't argue with the ability to tell me that's what the Bible says. It's true. Trudy, yeah. Okay. All right, Trudy, I'll buy into that. So uh, Romans also tells us for the wages of sin is death. death. <clears throat> it's not torture. It's not a really bad day. It's um, <clears throat> it's not a car accident. It's not a twisted ankle. It's not a scourging. It's it's death. And the Old Testament is consistent with that. And that's because God's holy standard has been broken. And God in his justice, maintaining his holy standard, the consequence for rebelling against him, for breaking that holy standard, 
isn't a slap on the wrist. It's the consequence <clears throat> is consistent with his worth, weight, glory, and holy standard. It's death. Nothing less is death. Why couldn't Jesus have just lived to 80, 85, 75, and just died of natural causes? Why didn't, why didn't he just do that? Why did it have to be this? So we're about to read this. This is rough. Why did it have to be this? I guess it's kind of the question I'm throwing out there too, Carol. Good question. Would part of it be having to fulfill prophecy? Yes. And then the <clears throat> death the grave. Mm-hmm. So there was certainly the need to fulfill prophecy, but why did God line up prophecy so that it had to happen this way? Why didn't just say there'll be one who comes out of Bethlehem, he's going to ride on a, on a colt into Jerusalem, live for 45 years in a nice place, and then die? Because prophecy could have said that, but it didn't. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> it would. Any other thoughts? That really wouldn't have been a sacrifice. I think that's the right direction. Yeah. Um, all of us just eventually die of old age. Okay, so that's not really. That's different. And uh, even like in the old in the Old Testament sacrificial system, it was. It was the lamb without blemish who was like, you know, at a good age. It wasn't the lamb that was almost dead. I mean, it was like, there's some consistency there. And, uh, <clears throat> and it's a true sacrifice. It's true torture. And just dying of old age really isn't those things. Um, so let's start working through. Torture. What? <laughs> okay. So, so Bill, said, Bill said age is torture. So... I stand corrected. All right. <clears throat> so let's work through some of these points on page 20. Bill, you always contribute. Thank you, Bill. All right. Jesus died on the cross, but the torture began hours before. Even the consideration of what was to, be, what was to come caused Jesus great agony. These verses tell us that Jesus fell to the ground. He prayed to the Father. He sweat drops like blood. He said out loud, I am overwhelmed to the point of death. I mean, he said that, like, he described his emotional state was he was overwhelmed to the point of feeling like he was going to die. Physically, he was sweating blood. So that also points to incredible pressure on him. Um, So, I mean, it started way ahead of time. Like, he knew, looking forward, what was going to happen physically, spiritually, relationally, because here we're going to look at the fact that he was basically betrayed and people just left him. He saw all those things happening, and the whole thought was overwhelming to the point where he said, Father, would you, would you give me another plan? Would you take this cup from me? That wasn't Jesus being disobedient. That wasn't Jesus saying, I don't want to do it your way. It was him recognizing what was in front of him and saying, is there any other option? Apparently, there wasn't because another option wasn't offered. And we know the Father loves the Son, but there was no other option offered. 
Jesus is betrayed by one of his own. He's denied by Peter. Remember Peter? I will never leave you. I will never leave your side, Jesus. Oh, well, maybe I will. See you later. Like, gone. Those he came to save called for his death. And in the end, he was deserted by his followers. Like when when the hammer came down and he was grabbed, everyone was gone. Gone. I mean, they were ate meals with him, did everything with him for three years. So in the moment he most needed them, could have used their support, their companionship, they took off. I mean, if you've ever been hurt by someone in a relationship, like this is like all of his relationships falling apart at the exact same moment. Like, even just one for you and me can be overwhelming and can take weeks and months to bounce back from. This was all of them at the same time were out, and Jesus had to deal with all of that emotionally. And it wasn't like the previous three years were all sweetness and light. No. They lived through some tough things. Absolutely. stayed with him, mm-hmm. but not through this. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, you're right. So the disciples had really stuck with him through some hard things. They weren't sleeping on certain mattresses every night. I mean, life wasn't easy. Uh, Jesus didn't have much. I mean, I think Jews kept the coin purse, but they're really... It only took one person to carry it and probably wasn't real heavy. I mean, Jesus just, there wasn't a lot there. Um, <clears throat> so, and they'd been through a lot. But this, this was kind of the last straw. This was the decision where they said, we're out. Jesus is taken before Annas, who was the former high priest. In that time, he's struck, he's taunted, and he's taken to Caiaphas, the high priest of the day. He was accused vehemently by the chief priests and the scribes while before Herod. False accusers lied and presented false testimony. Don't you hate it when someone says something about you that's not true? I hate it when they tell the truth. (laughs) Okay, sometimes the truth is worse. What did you feed him for dinner? Okay, so, so for you and me, when we hear just one small comment made about us that's wrong and makes us look just a little bad, isn't it so hard not to say something and to correct the person? Like there's a little anger and then there's a quick response to correct the person. Jesus just takes it. Like he just watches person after person come up and lie and he just takes it. And then in his declaration to be the Messiah, the King of the Jews, Jesus was blindfolded, beaten, and spit upon by his accusers. Jesus was ordered to be scourged in John 19.1. And This is a description of what that scourging was like. The Roman scourging was one of the most feared of all punishments. It was a form of brutal, inhumane punishment generally executed by Roman soldiers using the most dreaded instrument of the time called a flagrum. The flagrum used in scourging was a whip consisting of three or more leather tails that had plummetae, small metal balls or sheep bones at the end of each tail. As indicated on the Shroud of Turin, which isn't something we put a lot of weight in, but as indicated by that, the flagrum used on Jesus had a dumbbell-shaped plummete. In Mosaic law, the scourging could not exceed 40 lashes, but often the number of lashes was dependent upon the cruelty of the executioners. If the executioner did not want the cruciaris or the victim to die too quickly, they limited the amount of lashes administered. The number of lashes also depended on the person and their crime. The injuries sustained during the scourging were extensive. Blows to the upper back and rib area caused rib fractures. 
severe, severe bruising to the lungs, bleeding into the chest cavity, and partial or complete pneumothorax, puncture wounds to the lungs causing it to collapse. As much as 125 milliliters of blood could be lost. The victim would periodically vomit, experience tremors and seizures, and have bouts of fainting. Each excruciating strike would elicit shrieks of pain. The victim would be diaphoretic and exhausted, his flesh mangled and ripped, and would crave water because of the loss of fluid from bleeding and diaphoresis. The steady loss of fluid would initiate hypovolemic shock while a slow, steady accumulation of fluid in the injured lungs would make breathing difficult. <clears throat> Fractured ribs would make breathing painful, and the victim would only be able to take short, shallow breaths. The plummetae at the end of the leather strips would lacerate the liver, maybe even the spleen. Jesus' condition after scourging was serious. The pain and brutality of the torture put him in a early traumatic or injury shock. He was also in the hypovolemic shock because of a pleural effusion, hematodrosis, hemorrhaging from his wounds, and vomiting and diaphoresis. So even just that was crazy traumatic. I mean, a type of, I mean, we've never seen, well, I haven't, probably most of you have never seen something like this in person. This wasn't clean, okay? This isn't like an imprisonment. This isn't like a couple beatings with one of those sticks that the, the police use. Um, this, this is not that. This is messy. This would have been, after being whipped, there would have been parts of the individual all over the place. I mean, it just would have been a horrid thing to watch and to hear and to smell. Every single one of your senses would have been awake and alive and aware of what was going on. After this, the soldiers began, began to mock Jesus, Jesus, dressing him in a robe, treating him with contempt, and then sent him back to Pilate. A crown of thorns was placed on his head, and the, thorn, sorry, the thorns of that day were not like a little thorn bush. I mean, it was large, one-inch thorns, even sometimes bigger than an inch, and as hard as wood. I mean, Dan, you made one of those, didn't you? I mean, it is... I, I wouldn't want to try it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and, and most likely they didn't just set it on his head. They probably pushed it onto his head. I mean, it would have been incredible pain. The robe would have been put on a very bloody and torn back. His blood would have clotted to the robe, causing incredible pain and the reopening of all his wounds when they tore it off of him eventually. <clears throat> and that was probably done on purpose. The crowds who a week before were chanting Hosanna in the highest were now chanting crucify him. They're asking for the release of Barabbas, a murderer over Jesus. Jesus was then placed between two criminals on the cross. Even on the cross, soldiers mocked him. One of the criminals mocked him. They divided up his garments and they challenged him to save himself. Jesus hung there. He gave up his spirit and he died on the cross. Here's a description of the cross. There are various methods of performing the execution. Usually the condemned man, after being whipped or scourged, dragged the crossbeam of his cross to the place of punishment where the upright shaft was already fixed in the ground. Stripped of his clothing, either then or earlier at his scourging, he was bound fast with outstretched arms to the crossbeam or nailed firmly to it through the wrists. The crossbeam was then raised high against the upright shaft 
and made fast to it nine to 12 feet from the ground. Next to the feet were tightly bound or nailed to the upright shaft. A ledge inserted about halfway up the upright shaft gave some support to the body. Evidence for a similar ledge for the feet is rare and late. It occurred later in history. Over the criminal's head was placed a notice stating his name and his crime. Death ultimately occurred through the combination of constrained blood circulation, organ failure, and asphyxiation as the blood strained under, his own, under its own weight. It could be the hastening by shat shattering the legs with an iron club, which prevented them from supporting their body's weight, which made inhalation more difficult, accelerating both asphyxiation and shock. <coughs> So while he's on the cross, Jesus cries out before he dies, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22, verse 2. Um, why does he say that? That's a loaded question. Why does he say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, Dan. The sins of all mankind were on him, and God could not look upon them. Okay. He was dying for Good. So sin separates us from God, right? Well, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So there's a moment there on the cross where Jesus becomes sin, like our sin lands on him. He fully takes it on himself. So where before you and I were separated from God, Jesus, because he bears the weight of our sin and it's actually on him, God the Father must in some moment there forsake Jesus as he's pouring his wrath out on Jesus. So the wrath of your sin and mine lands squarely on Jesus. Jesus doesn't even cry out, and whatever that pain was, which we don't understand and can't understand, he cries out because there's a broken relationship between him and the Father for the first time in all of eternity. And that broken relationship causes him distress. What was causing him to sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane? It could be lots of things, but I would guess this might have been the most traumatic moment of the entire day was right here, where for the first time ever, the father turns his back on the son. If you've ever experienced rejection from someone you love, you've got just like a tiny, tiny little piece of what this might have felt like for Jesus. So the father forsakes him for a moment in time, however long that was. Jesus then says, it is finished. So he stands in there for us. He bears the full brunt of the father's wrath and he bears it and he bears it until he can say out loud, it is finished, it's been accomplished, all done. How powerful is that? I mean, he stands in our place and bears it and says, it is finished. And then he, at the end, says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So the one who moments before had to forsake his son, it's finished. And it looks like then there's a renewal there where he says, into your hands I give you my spirit. It's no longer a position of being forsaken. It's a position of trust and giving everything that he had left and all he had left was his spirit to the Father. I mean, it's, it's horrid, it's amazing, and it's beautiful 
all within that period of time. Um, <clears throat> so those different statements of Jesus on the cross just kind of give us some insight on what was happening on a spiritual level. Because they could see what was happening on a physical level. But there was a whole other thing taking place there, a transaction between two members of the Trinity, all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly holy, perfectly loving, perfectly just. All the, there's a transaction happening there that they could not physically see. We can't, couldn't physically see, but only through the words of Jesus do we get some insight into what was happening there in that most profound spiritual level of what was really taking place on the cross. Not just the death of a physical body, but the pouring out of the Father's wrath on your sin on my, and mine, on the God-man, the Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Okay. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, Dan. If this book were written by man, it would never have been written that way. No. Inspired by man, it would not have been written the way it was. Yeah, if man wrote the Bible, this is not how the story would have gone. No, the best Hollywood producers could not come up with this. And we didn't do that in this particular study, but we could have walked, and we would have, it was, would have taken us six or seven hours, but from Genesis 3.15 to here, to see this, this movement of God promising that there was one who was coming who was going to defeat sin and Satan, to this moment where sin and Satan is defeated by the death on the cross. When he says, it is finished, like, it's finished. Like, he's accomplished it. Like, there's, like, goosebumps when you hear that. It is finished. Now, the Roman soldiers are really good at making sure people are dead. They were very good at that. So even after they watch Jesus suffer and stop breathing and clearly be dead on the cross, they still pierced his side with a spear. Why do I emphasize that? Because if you ever hear... Maybe Jesus was just in a coma for a couple of days. Maybe he just got knocked out. No, you just heard the scourging. You heard how the cross works, and they took a spear to his side to make sure he was dead. Romans didn't make mistakes when it came to killing people. They were very, very good at it. They dominated the entire world by doing a good job at killing people. They had it down. They killed Jesus. Here's two good quotes. At the heart of evangelical of evangelical spirituality lies the atoning work of Christ. The Christian life is viewed primarily as a life that finds its origin in the cross and is lived in grateful response to it and humble imitation of it. So three great descriptions. Our life is lived with the cross at its origin. We live in grateful response to it and a humble imitation of it. A sense of Christ's love in dying for us must be instilled as the mainspring and motive for all of our obedience. If we're struggling with being obedient, we need to spend some time looking at the cross because then you're reminded of his love. And he says, when you love me, you're just, you're going to do what I ask you to do. It's a response to love. Obedience is a response to love. So what would you say are some ways that we, you, us, sometimes underappreciate the cross in our circles today. What are some of your thoughts? And I will probably repeat your thoughts as you say them so they can be heard. 
become commonplace mm. in our Christian world. Because we hear about it a lot. Sometimes we just take it for granted and we don't think about it like we should. And I agree. I think uh, some people fall back to their works, mm. their acceptance with God. Even though they've heard and accepted the gospel, they still fall back. They'll be accepted by God because uh, they paid their bills, they raised their children. That's good, Dan. So sometimes we fall back on our works. Let's just be honest with each other for a second. At the end of the day, if you did your quiet time, prayed a bunch, had a good conversation with someone, maybe shared the gospel, you feel a little better before God than if you cuss someone out, punched your neighbor's dog, whatever it is that you do that you know you shouldn't do. You know, if you did all those things that day and you go to sit down before the Lord, you feel a little guilty. Now, you are equally accepted regardless of what kind of day you had. But there's a tendency within us still to base our acceptance before God on how good of a job we did that day. That detracts from the cross. Just like what you said, Dan, it detracts from the cross. It puts my relationship with God more on my back than on Jesus' torn back where he accomplished everything. So whenever you are about to try to do a work to, to please God, okay, let me say this correctly. God is pleased by our good works. But whenever we try to do a good work in order to achieve like more acceptance before God, realize when Jesus said it is finished, it includes your salvation. Like it's done. There's nothing you can contribute to be more saved by a good work tomorrow than you're already saved today. You have eternal life. It's something you already possess. You are saved. You're a past tense saved. You still have great things to experience in the future, but you are past tense already saved. You are a child of the king. You can't contribute to that relationship. He adopted you. Done deal. It's already sealed. But there's a tendency within us to try to contribute. And what that does is it does. It detracts from the cross. It says, Jesus, thanks for helping me out. I got it from here. Ooh, phew. isn't that scary? But like we say that, don't we? Like just internally, we just, we do it. Um, <clears throat> so some of the benefits of thinking about the cross is I think we're reminded of, of Christ's love. We're reminded that we can't do any of it. Um, there's a danger when we think of the cross, we just kind of forget about it and move on into Christian living, thinking like the, the message of the cross and all of this is for somebody who's like a 101 Christian. Does that make sense? Like Christianity 101 is the cross, but Christianity 201 is stuff that's like better than the cross. It never gets better. There isn't like a stage two of Christianity that like moves past the cross. We live our life at the foot of the cross. Like we never move from there. Good Friday, every single year should be amazing. Communion, every time you take it, should be amazing. And if it's not, it's an indication and a reflection on us, not on the cross. We've become unaware of all that he's done for us because every single time is overwhelming. All that pain we talked about, it was for you. It was for me. You've done nothing to deserve that love or to earn that. Neither have I, like nothing. But he did all of it. Now, even though the death was horrid, even though the torture was beyond what we can understand, Jesus didn't stay in the tomb, okay? So there's a place here where it's good to think about the cross, but if it leads to like despair, introspection, like you can't get off of it, then you've stayed there too long because it's supposed to eventually result in joy, okay? And that comes from talking about the resurrection. <clears throat> now, when it comes to the resurrection, 
you're going to notice even today, people still want to argue against the resurrection. Like they do not want to accept the resurrection. Why would someone who doesn't believe in God or doesn't believe in the Bible fight so hard against the resurrection? What motivates them? Without the resurrection, it's all caca. <laughs> it's all caca. So watch your language, Carol. Um, <clears throat> so is that Spanish? Okay, I, I didn't catch that. Boy, no. So, <clears throat> so if you remove if you remove the resurrection, the whole thing falls apart. So, but if you believe in the resurrection, all of a sudden you've got to deal with something that makes no sense unless God exists, God has spoken, and God came to earth. So the resurrection is like a key point there. If you buy into it or you believe it, there's a whole bunch of dominoes that have to follow afterwards logically. So which. If you're someone who doesn't believe, you have to fight against this concept of the resurrection. There's a lot of different things that we can do to argue that the resurrection really happened. I think the eyewitness accounts are the easiest way of doing it. There are multiple, multiple eyewitness accounts given in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They support one another. When you put them all together, it's amazing. And when all is said and done, many of these people who saw him suffered and died for this testimony that they actually saw him. That is a ridiculous thing to do if you didn't actually saw him and it's a big hoax. It was just 60, 70 years after this that Christians were being put on posts and burned to death throughout Rome by Nero. Like, it gets horrible. Why would you ever do that if you're just trying to make something seem real that didn't actually happen? we would say these people saw something that changed them. And that wouldn't be a lie. It wouldn't be a hoax. We would say it was the person of Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. Mary Magdalene, early Easter morning, sees Jesus. Women, plural, at the tomb, early Easter morning, see Jesus. Peter, early to midday Easter, sees Jesus. And John was with him. The, um, the Emmaus disciples, the guys walking along the road, Jesus shows up with them and walks with them, and they see him. The 11 without Thomas, Easter evening, see Jesus. The 11 with Thomas, the next Sunday, see Jesus. 500 or more at one time see Jesus, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 6. The very next verse says that James, and most likely the rest of Jesus' family, sees Jesus. That's where James seems to actually believe in Jesus. He becomes the leader of the J Jerusalem church and writes the book of James. He reinstates Peter. Peter, the guy who was scared to even be around Jesus. Next thing you know, he's being thrown into prison. He's being beaten, and he keeps going for it and going for it. Something changed in Peter. He had to have seen Jesus. There's no other explanation. Because he, he was afraid to be associated with Jesus before. Now he's willing to die for Jesus. Something changed. 72 apostles see him in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, the Great Commission gathering before Jesus ascends to the Father. We don't know how many people were there. Probably over a hundred. It was a crowd that he was speaking to. In the Ascension, people see Jesus. And he also appears to Paul in chapter 9 of Acts. A guy who was murdering Christians all of a sudden becomes a Christian. Like he, he was on the dull end of the spear. Like he knows what it's like to finish off Christians. And then to say, I'm going to go from the dull end to the pointy end of the spear. There's no explanation unless he was introduced to Jesus. So we would say this has radically changed all these people to the point where they're willing to suffer and even die. Now there's that saying, somebody wouldn't die for a lie. 
I have no idea if that's true or not. But I don't think hundreds and hundreds of people would die for a lie. And that's what we would be saying if the resurrection didn't really happen. The stone, the guards, and the high publicity of Jesus' death would have made it impossible for the body to have been simply stolen. The Romans knew what was going on. The Jews knew what was going on. They would not have wanted his body stolen. The Romans were good at killing people, and they were good at making sure they accomplished what they wanted to accomplish. Big stone, guards, he was in the tomb, he was guarded. So through the century, many have argued that Jesus did not raise from the dead, and we've already discussed why they do so. All right, now our topic is to get more interesting. Everything we've said up to this point is simple, clear, and we all hold to the same thing. Now it gets a little bit harder. <clears throat> Jesus' resurrected body. The act of incarnation was not a temporary arrangement which ended with his death and resurrection, but as the scriptures make evident, his human nature continues forever. His earthly body, which died on the cross, being transformed into a resurrection body suited for his glorious presence in heaven. Now, I didn't just find some weird theologian to pick, like every conservative theologian would, would say this. This is a consistent teaching. Okay, well, let's see if there's any verses that support it. So Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man in both Gospels. He also refers to himself as the Son of God. So Son of Man usually references his human nature. Son of God is a little bit more of an emphasis on his divine nature. But he also calls himself the Son of Man in Revelation 1.13 and Revelation 14.14. So he still connects himself to the human nature even after he's been glorified. John 20, 17, with his resurrected body, Mary clings to it. Like it, there's, there's a physical part of it. But we also remember that Jesus shows up with the disciples and the doors were locked. Okay, so both are true. It can be touched, it can be clinged to, but he also shows up in a room when all the doors were locked. So it's something, it's not like your body, it's not like mine, it's something different. We also see that he eats. Do you remember that? Like he sits down with the disciples and he puts food in his mouth and he eats in his resurrected body. Will you and I be eating in heaven? It's very possible. Why, it's very possible. Why is this part important about, about Jesus, that he's son of man and son of God? It shows his eternal connection to us. That it wasn't just, well, I can do this for 30, 33 years and then I'm out, I'm done. What we see here is that he is eternally connected to us. It almost shows like a whole, a whole other level of his love for us. Not that he's just willing to be connected for a short time to us, but the fact that he's willing to take on a human nature, receive a resurrected body, and it appears that he lives in that resurrected body, glorified through all of eternity with us. I mean, that's commitment. That's a huge level of love. The disciples place their hands into his wounds. I would even say that's kind of confusing. Like, do your scars stick around? I mean, like in the resurrected body? I've, I, I've already prayed this. I would like a six foot four resurrected body because I feel like this one, I got shafted a little bit. I'd like to be a little bit taller than the next one. Um, <clears throat> so I, I don't know like how much of it sticks, but they also recognize Jesus. It's not like, who's that? Like they had the ability to look at him and recognize him. They hear his voice, and they're like, that's Jesus. So there's some carryover. There's some similarity. But like, if 
if one of us walks out there and gets plastered by a car, hopefully that's not the body that you come back with. You know what I mean? Where your arm is on the wrong side and your head's turned the wrong, like that's not your resurrected body. Um, I mean, so, but Jesus still has some of the scars. So, so I don't totally understand what happens there. Couldn't there have been, maybe that could have been a transcendental state for the faith of his followers, so, so maybe we could kind of posit that they weren't sure that he was actually going to raise from the dead. He could have done that for their sake. And then so by eating the scars remaining and appearing in a human form, it just kind of validated that. Totally could have, but we just have no idea. I mean, I think that's as good of an answer as any that I could give. And that could totally be right. But we also just don't know. So yeah, possibly. Scars in, in heaven, isn't that going to be kind of like a memorial for what he's done for us too? It makes sense that he still has his. Will we still have any of ours? I don't think so. I don't think so. But I don't know. We're going to have a new body because Do you get your 25-year-old version? Do you get your 35-year-old version? Do you get your 65-year-old version of your body? I mean, do you get a vote? I mean. That's why, that's why I think it doesn't make sense to me. So I would say I don't, I don't think we would have any. Or we don't care because we're concerned about other things and we're so happy that it doesn't matter. But I'm kind of going back and forth. So in Jesus's there were still some scars and ours. I just don't know. You're right. So we're going to have new bodies. As for Jesus, he was perfect while he was on this earth, so his resurrected body is going to be glorified body is going to be similar to what it was here. He probably didn't really need a new body since he was sinless. Well, he had a human body which was going to age and die, just like it grew older. He was going to age and die. He wasn't like going to get older and then Benjamin Button that thing back. You know what I mean? Like it was, <laughs> it was, that was it. Um, <clears throat> but the body that he had on earth was not a body that was going to last eternally. He receives a resurrected body. But he still has scars. And that's the part that I'm just throwing out there that I think is interesting, but I don't have any answers well, to. See, the effects of sin, even though he was sinless, affected him. You know, so if God made us in, in his image, he used to say that Adam and Eve's body would have never deteriorated. I mean, there was, um, so with Adam and Eve, there was no threat of physical death until they sinned. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's restored, then maybe we would all have the body that Adam and Eve had. Maybe. Maybe. Will there be children? No, it says there's going to be no marrying in heaven. Oh, okay. So it does say that. Um, but do we get six packs? I mean, like, there's all these other questions. That was, and, no, and that's probably enough of that discussion. Good discussion. Let's talk about the ascension. How are we doing on time? <clears throat> I can't see a clock anymore. Thank you. The Ascension. Uh, there are minimal passages concerning the Ascension of Christ. There just isn't a lot. The focus seems to be more on his last words than on the method of his return to heaven. Luke in the books of, book of Acts gives us the most detail, but then quickly shifts to the work of the church, the coming of the Spirit, and the spread of the gospel. Here are the passages. There aren't that many. Mark 16, 19. So then, when the Lord Jesus has spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Luke 24, 51, while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Acts 1, 9, after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him 
from their sight. A little bit later in Acts, it says that as they're still looking up, two angels appear and say, you can stop looking up here. Like, go do what you're supposed to do. In the way that he left, it'll be the same way that he returns. So, okay, a couple observations. And again, I'm just leading us down a, a road that we're going to have to stop. Like, this, this isn't going to help. This isn't helping any of you, what I'm about to say. But, <clears throat> but why is he going up? Like, is heaven that way? Is it that way? So like when we say angels and demons, it's like they're right around us. Like the spiritual world is just like on the other side of the veil that we cannot connect to or see. God is spirit. But Jesus, in every one of those passages, he's like going that way. Now, the earth, we know the earth is round, right? Maybe. <laughs> if we believe the flat earth is right, the firmer that's his footstool, you know? So maybe it is up. So if, we're, so if we just go with round, we'll just go with that for this core class. Um, like... He was in a particular place. He was in Jerusalem. Did he just, is heaven just straight up from Jerusalem? Is, it, is heaven circular all the way around the earth? Like, or is the physical aspect of him going up into the air not what we're supposed to focus on? Like, this is just a, an interesting thing. And he now has a location. He has a resurrected body. And the location is where? The right hand of God, right? So he's not just randomly floating up into some... He's not, I mean, it's like to a place. He's going to the right hand of God. Let's just go to the next page. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so a Jesus ascends, because we're going to keep talking about things that we don't have answers to. Jesus ascends to heaven forever as the son of God and as the son of man. He receives glory. He receives honor. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. In Acts 7, this is where Stephen is being stoned. And he's basically sharing the gospel with everyone around him, walking through the Old Testament, clarifying who Jesus is. And he says that the heavens open up. He can see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, we said in a previous core class, maybe you were with me, maybe you weren't, but we asked the question, will we see the Father when we're in heaven. Remember that question? I threw that out there. Are we going to see just Jesus or are we going to see the Father? So here, because Jesus tells us, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And we don't have a clear reference in Revelation that we ever see the Father. And we know from John 1.18 that no one has ever seen the Father except Jesus Christ who has explained him. So Jesus is the one who's always radiating the Father and showing us the Father and reflecting the Father. He's the image and the fullness of deity. But here, it's like Jesus, I guess, if you look at Jesus and he's right beside the Father, I mean, you're going to see him? I don't know. So I'm just, I'm just saying, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> but Jesus will be glorified and reinstated into his eternal glory, even though he has a resurrected body. Let's go to John 17, because this is a fun verse. If you'd like to go there with me. John 17 is where he's praying for his disciples and for us. And I just, I love the heart of Jesus in these verses. 
John 17, 22, Jesus speaking to the Father says, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. The glory that you've given me. So whatever glory God has already given to the Son, what does it say that he did with that glory? He in some form or fashion gave it to us, the church, his bride. He's given some of that to us for a reason, that they may be one just as we are one. So he has given us glory with the purpose of us being unified, having a oneness that reflects the oneness between the Son and the Father. Seven chapters before, he says, I and the Father are one. Here he says, I've, the glory you've given me, I've given to them that they might be one like you and I are one. All of that just, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, like, so we, you and I, even if we disagree on little things, you and I, even if we don't like the same type of pie, like we're supposed to have a oneness and a unity like the Father and the Son have a oneness and a unity. That's why he gave us glory. <clears throat> and it continues. I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity. Why? So the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So this unity that he is giving us through giving us glory is so that the world who sees us says, what? They're clearly loved by God, known by God. So our unity, our oneness, our love for one another displays to a watching world what God is like. It's powerful. Catch verse 24. And this is Jesus. He said, he, Jesus says, Father, I desire. So he takes a desire to the Father. Jesus, the Son of God who knows everything, takes a desire. He doesn't say, Father, I logically conclude that this is the best choice. Sometimes Jesus speaks out of his emotional nature too. Jesus was made like you and me, like he has an emotional nature. We would say the Father has an emotional nature. We were created in his image. They, they, we, our emotions are a pale, but refle pale reflection, but a reflection nevertheless of our God who also has emotions. Father, I desire, I want, I long that they, that's you and me, also, whom you have given me, would be with me where I am. Why? So that they may see my glory that you have given me. For you have loved me before the foundation of the world. So what he's praying there is that he wants you and you and me to be with him forever and to see his glory, to see his splendor, and to sit in front of his majesty forever. Like, Jesus is super excited about receiving the glory that he had before the creation of the world. And he's also super excited that he gets to show it to you. He's like, Father, this is something I want. This is something I long for. Is that you take my bride, those who you've given to me, and show them your love for me. Show them the glory that you had for me and have for me now and forever with them. Wow. Is, that, is that not amazing? Like, he, and that's just something he wants, and he's praying for that to happen. I would guess Jesus knows how to pray according to God's will. So I'm, I'm, I'm betting on that one happening, okay? I'm excited about that one happening. So when we show up in heaven, he's like, I've been praying that you would be here. I've been excited about the day when you get to see me 
and to be with me. Look, I died on the cross. When I said it was finished, I was in the grave for three days. And when I came out, this is what happened. I received the glory of the Father. You get to be in it. This will light the new creation for all of eternity. This glory that was given to me by the Father, you get to bask in it. You get to enjoy it in your resurrected body for all of eternity. Wonderful thoughts. Matthew 25, 31 says that Jesus is the glorious King. Glorious King. John 13, 31 through 32. The glory of the Son glorifies the Father, and the glory of the Father is seen in the Son. Let's go to Revelation chapter 1. So Revelation is written by John. It says that John's hanging out on this island of Patmos, and then he's taken up in the Spirit and shown these amazing things. And <clears throat> throughout this book, over and over again, John's using language like, like, like. It, was, it looked like this and looked sort of like that because some of the things he's seeing is like beyond human language and human words. So all he can do is draw comparisons and metaphors to explain what he's seeing. Here, he sees the glorified Son of Man, verse 12 of chapter 1. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he had seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things that you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what strikes you there about how Jesus is described? Does anything stick out to you? So he's got this like white hair with these eyes like flames. Is that not going to be... Scary, scary. I mean, it kind of sounds that way. Yeah. How about his voice? It says many waters, or another translation would say it sounds like rushing waters. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls? So they have those like little catacombs or little tunnels behind the falls. If you've ever gone back there, and like if we're this close and I go to talk to you, you can't hear me because the sound of the rushing waters are so loud that it drowns out every other sound. His voice will drown out every other sound. His voice is like rushing waters, powerful, strong, somewhat overwhelming. How is his face described? Like the midday sun. Like 
you and I can't even look at the sun for like more than a couple seconds. You shouldn't anyways, but if you do, like it only takes a couple seconds before like, this is a bad idea. Like you just realize right away that you're hurting yourself and you look away. We're just talking about his face is like the midday sun, okay? Like that, that was the only way he could describe his face, like the midday sun. Why are his feet described as bronze? No one's been able to get, I'm, I'm guessing Trudy might get this. No pressure, Trudy. But why are his feet described as bronze? Any thoughts or any Old Testament references that pop into your head? Daniel. So that's the one that everybody's thinking is like the Nebuchadnezzar and the big statue. I think it's not, I think it's something different. It doesn't tell us, so we're, I'm kind of guessing here. Can you think of anything else that was bronze? Perhaps in the tabernacle or in the temple? Psalms. What was bronze in there? Do you remember? The mercy seat, the atonement cover. So you had the ark, you had the cherubim, and then on top was the, the mercy seat, the atonement cover, which is where the, the blood would be sprinkled. It was burnished bronze. Like it was, without that, the high priest couldn't come in. Unless blood was shed in the bronze, in, on the mercy seat, there was no access to God. Now, I don't know for sure if that's what it's referring to there, but like when it comes to bronze, that's, in some ways, it was almost like the way that the temple was designed, it was as though God's feet would land there to meet with his people. It would have to land there on, on the shed blood of an animal to interact with his people. So it, that might be the picture that's kind of being given here. Could it simply be the color of his skin? It could be. But his face looks like a different color. I, I don't know. It could be. Or, or energy radiating out of it. Radiating out of it. Mm -hmm. it could be. It could be that simple. Uh, out of his mouth comes a two-edged sword. The word of God is described as the sword of the spirit, right? In Ephesians 6. So his words will accomplish their purpose. They will cut to the bone. Okay? When it comes to the whole armor of God in Ephesians 6, the sword of the spirit is the only offensive weapon. The entire and the armor is actually defensive, except for this the sword of the spirit, which is kind of consistent here with that illustration that the scripture uses. Paul in one case, John in this case, <clears throat> also powerful. So there's just, that's just a snapshot. Like that's John just seeing Jesus for a moment and trying to describe what he saw. Do you think that's literal and not hyperbole? Uh, I do not think that's an actual sword. I would say that that is. Am I pronouncing that right, hyperbole? Oh, hyperbolic. hyperbolic. So I would say he's trying I would say he's trying to describe what he's seeing. So he's doing his best. So is it totally literal? No, because there's no, there's no reference point for this. It'd be like, like me asking you to, to describe one of those weird animals from Harry Potter. Right. They're, they're, like you can't describe it because we've, I have no idea what you're saying because I've never seen it before. This is kind of what's happening here. Like you run, and it happens throughout Revelation, you run out of words. So it's kind of like a locust with a face. What? When I mean, God's here, when Jesus is here, when he speaks, things will happen. That's what they'd say. That's what I think that's what it's yeah, mainly saying as well. Because um, <clears throat> his voice is described as rushing waters. I don't think that's the sound of swords coming out of his mouth. Um, but his words are described. His word is described as the sword of the Spirit. So I think it would be consistent with that. Um, so that's Jesus in all his glory. 
Okay, so it started rough, but it ends beautiful, doesn't it? So that's something to look over again, look through those verses again. Uh, let me close this in prayer. We got done three minutes early for the first time ever. <laughs> Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you are here. I thank you that you just love us so much. The fact that you died on the cross for us is overwhelming. And then, Lord, after dying on the cross for our sin, after experiencing the weight of the wrath of our sin from God the Father, you still say out loud, I want to spend all of eternity with these folks. I want to be betrothed to them. I want them to see my glory and bask in my love for all of eternity. Jesus, that's just love beyond comprehension. May that motivate us, change us, grow us, and cause us to fall more in love with you. In Christ's name, amen. We've got one more week in this study. So we'll see you next week. And then we'll be off until the fall. <laughs>